It's a tough gig being asked to preach the week after Easter. Um, how do you follow up the high of the resurrection? Let's try it. Do you remember that thing Rich reminded us of last week? Let's make it a good one for the recording. Christ is risen. He is risen how much do we still believe that to be true this week? As compared to the joy of last Sunday? I don't know about you, but there are certain times a year, Christmas and Easter being two of these times, where I get a real thrill for ministry, a real thrill for living out the gospel. You know, we can leave church any normal Sunday and think, yeah, I'm going to be a proper good Christian this week. And then you roll out of bed on Monday morning, you go to work, and the reality of life just slaps you in the face, doesn't it? But not just that, but sin starts knocking at our door again. From seemingly small things like opportunities to gossip to maybe stronger temptations, more serious things. It's hard trying to live as a Christian in this world at times, isn't it? We spent uh, some time last week looking at one of the last times the Apostle John records seeing Jesus. You can read about that uh, in chapter 21 of John's Gospel. And John wrote another few letters that we can read in the New Testament. Um, But what I want us to look at this afternoon is the next time that John records seeing Jesus. It's about 60 years later. We've just read it uh, in Revelation chapter 1. So just for a bit of context. The book of Revelation is a letter written by John to churches spread throughout the Roman Empire. And these churches were facing all sorts of difficulties, from horrendous persecution to the pressures and temptations of the other dominating religions and cultural practices that go against their Christian principles. And failure to adhere to these ideas and engage in these shameful activities would have suggested to the world around them that they weren't good people. They weren't good citizens. Doesn't that sound familiar? And the site of a place called Ephesus, which was quite a significant uh, city um, in this time, archaeologists have found graffiti, 2,000-year-old graffiti, which says this, Rome, your power will never end. And that was certainly the general feeling at the time. Rome seemed like this mighty, powerful, unstoppable machine. Everywhere they turn, these Christians are branded with symbols of Rome's power and might, from the coins in their pockets to walking down the street and being surrounded with busts and statues of the Roman emperors and gods. No doubt it looked amazing. Just imagine just going out for a loaf of bread. And walking down the high street is like walking down the strip in Las Vegas, surrounded by casinos and bars and people falling out of them. And Maybe to be even more provocative, imagine trying to go for a loaf of bread and having to walk down the red light district in Amsterdam, surrounded by things that you don't want to be looking at, things you don't want to be involved in. It's a tough place to be a Christian. It doesn't often feel like that living as a Christian in the world. 
Christians all throughout history have faced pressure and persecution in different ways. And there are often people in our lives that we lean on when things get tough, right? I know for me that when things are hard, there's one brother, or, or rather a group of brothers, that I really want to spend time with. If I've got a difficult decision that I need to make, I want to hear from them. I want to hear what they have to say. I want them to speak the gospel into my life. And I'm sure as I say that, somebody or some people might be coming to mind for you. Maybe it's someone that you meet with regularly every week. Maybe it's someone who's sadly already passed away. What you'd give to hear what they have to say, right? And so, imagine the relief of the original recipients of this letter when they hear from the Apostle John. John was one of Jesus' closest followers. And if there is someone out there who gets what they're going through, it's John. So first and foremost, just as a couple of little sub-points for context, this is a word from John. Just, if you've got a Bible, make sure it's open, because we're going to be quite in the text, um, jumping, jumping around a little bit. But just look at verse 9 with me, where John writes, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Do you get that? It doesn't just kick off with, I, the mighty apostle John. In some of his other letters, he starts by calling himself the elder. Stating his apostolic credentials. But here, John's not trying to assert his authority over them. But rather, he writes, what does he write? He writes, your brother and companion in suffering. See, John's identifying with them. He's emphasising his solidarity with these troubled believers. Because John shares in their experience of suffering, imprisonment, social rejection. He tells us in the next line of the same verse that he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. Now, as nice as that may sound, Patmos is 100 miles off the coast of Turkey. But John wasn't there on holiday. He wasn't on a career break, a sabbatical. He certainly wasn't self-isolating. John had essentially been exiled by the Roman Empire because of the message he was preaching. The Romans wanted rid of him. Because to say that Jesus was Lord meant that the the, the Roman emperor was not. That was a problem. Now, both the Bible and secular history tell us that many of the early ministers of the gospel, alongside all of the other apostles, were martyred. They were killed because of the good news of Jesus that they were preaching. And now the apostle John is the only one left. See, both John and these believers know hardship. And now he's writing to them to speak the gospel into their lives. To give them courage. To face the coming days, whatever they may look like. To endure to the end because they, like John, 
are now part of a greater empire, a greater kingdom. Now, as we noted earlier, this is a letter, and it has all the marks of a first century letter, and they're a little bit different to how we write letters today. And the actual personal bit of the letter starts at verse 4. And rather than writing love from John at the end of the letter, as we normally would, he writes it at the start. Honestly, I think that seems a bit more convenient. Maybe he's onto something. Look at verse 4. He says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and then he brings his greeting. Grace and peace to you. Now, I'll normally write that at the end of emails as well. Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. See, in the midst of their hardship, isn't that what they desire more than anything? Grace and peace. Grace and peace from God. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What a job description that is, right? And I'm not just going to brush over it. We're going to come back to some of those themes as we, as we move on. But see, in the midst of their trouble, John is pointing these readers beyond himself to one that has gone before them, plunged the very depths of suffering, tasted death, and rose victorious and now rules and reigns because what John has to say to these believers isn't just a nice encouraging word from himself as helpful as I'm sure that would be this is a word from the Lord verse 1 it's a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place get this verse 3 blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy Bet you would all wish you were on the reading rota this week. Thank you, Rachel, for reading. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it. Just imagine how significant those words would have been to those original readers. Not forsaken, but blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written. And we should hear it as such too. Now some of you may be aware that many people often approach the book of Revelation with all sorts of numbers and charts and crazy ideas about what all these things mean and scary illustrations as if though it's some sort of code book to crack the future. And it can be quite overwhelming. I was certainly put off the book of Revelation for years because of it. But let's hear it as it is, as it claims to be. It's a word from God to his people and to take to heart what's written in it. Take to heart what he says to us. The other side of that is that if you're sat here listening to this, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, you should seriously consider what's going to be said. There is good news here for you. Right, are you still with me? If you've zoned out at all, this is a good place to come back, okay? Because the real meat of what we're going to look at this afternoon is in the second part of the chapter, where John receives this glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, risen Jesus Christ, should I say. 
It's a vision so incredible that it puts the power and the imagery of the mighty Roman Empire and all the pressure of the surrounding culture into perspective. And we don't quite have the time and I don't quite have the patience to pick apart every little detail of what things may or may not mean. And you may have questions when we're done. If so, ask Jai. (laughs) But there are two significant points that I think are pretty clear from the passage, okay? And it's this. That the risen Christ gives us confidence in the face of life and it gives us hope in the face of death. And we're going to use that to shape our time. Confidence in the face of life and hope in the face of death. Let's take them in turn. Confidence in the face of life. Now people often say that a picture paints a thousand words, right? I've heard that before. Not in John's case. And believe it or not, this is the closest thing we have to a physical description of Jesus in the whole of the Bible, and yet it's all symbolic. Now, it's worth pointing out as well that the genre of the book of Revelation isn't something that we will be familiar with today. When you go to a bookshop, okay, you've got your science fiction section, your sports section, your children's section. You're not going to find an apocalyptic section, are you? But that's what this is. This is apocalyptic literature. And one of the keys, the key features of apocalyptic, apocalyptic, you said elegant accent, I can't even say it. Apocalyptic writing is to explain things symbolically. You know, people often say, why didn't Jesus just come in 2022? What year is it? 2022, when we've got cameras and internet. You know, if someone just took a picture of Jesus, then I would believe. But honestly, I think a picture would lose something of what John's trying to convey here. Let me explain. Now, I'm not really into sport, okay? So forgive me if this is dreadful. I always tell Ben off for using sport illustrations. But if I said to you, who's here? You're getting it. If I said to you, did you see Jodie Clark play football, rugby, this weekend? He was on fire. He was untouchable. Now, nine times out of ten, you know that I don't mean that poor Jodie was actually on fire, okay? You know that. I'm speaking metaphorically. But you know that I mean his skills, his playing, it's impeccable. It's incredible. See, John doesn't just draw the reader a picture of the Jesus he sees, but rather he illustrates this magnificent portrait using words, using allusions from the Old Testament that the Jewish Christians would have been familiar with and understood. But symbols that the, the Gentile, the, meaning the non-Jewish Christians, would have understood too. Now let me just show you a few examples of this. Let's read together. Look at verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, this is John speaking, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Voice like a trumpet, can you imagine that? 
See, this has echoes from the Old Testament of God and his people using trumpets to call his people to attention, to listen to what God has to say to them or to call them into action. But it was also a significant sound in the Roman army. The Roman army used trumpets for the same reason. The army today still use trumpets, don't they? I was in the boys' brigade growing up and bugles were often used to wake us up in the morning on summer camps. I was at the pub last night and rather than having a bell, they had a bugle for last call. It's sharp, it's loud. My point is, you don't just have to be Jewish to understand these symbols. But you don't just have to be a Roman either. Because John points out as well that the Lord seems to be wearing a robe, a sash, like the priestly garments from the Jewish temple. Yet in the Roman army, the length of your robe was like your stripes in the army today. The longer your robe, the higher up your authority. Did you notice how long Jesus was? Down to his feet. John goes on to say, verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. These pictures represent the wisdom of age and the fiery yet righteous judgment of God, his all-seeing eye. And his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And this picture of the sword comes up a few times. But I don't know if you've noticed. It's never in his hand. He's not yielding it and waving it about. But it's coming from his mouth. Indicating the power and authority that comes with his very words. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. What a picture, right? Try and draw that. It's rich. It's almost overwhelming. But if you're struggling to grasp that, try and imagine how this would have come across to the original readers. Perhaps these churches felt pretty alone, powerless, abandoned. And as intimidating as the Roman Empire may seem for these churches, and as we, even today, feel the pressure of the surrounding culture and all the expectations that come along with that, church, here is your king. This vision of Jesus, as glorious and as terrifying as it may be, should give the believer courage and comfort in the face of the hardships of life. Don't fear the Romans. Don't fear the surrounding culture in which we live. We should rightly fear the one who is the ultimate ruler of the kings of the earth, as John calls him. Because they will all answer to him one day. Before we move on, there's just one other thing that I want to draw your attention to. Look at verse 12. 
Verse 12, John says that he hears the voice and he says, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, John's not just really into his interior design here, okay? There's a reason that he's telling us about these lampstands. Later, just cast your eyes down to verse 20, the Lord tells us that the lampstands represent the seven churches that he's writing to. It's always helpful when the Bible explains itself, isn't it? But what did you notice? That John tells us about these lampstands. Look at verse 13. Among the lampstands, among the churches, was someone like a son of man. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? It's not just that song from Tarzan either that I've been listening to all week. That's a phrase that Jesus uses to refer to himself. See, Jesus isn't just standing far off from the church. And he's not just up in heaven, indifferent to what's going on down here. God never was. God dwelled with his people when they were wandering through the wilderness. Think of his tabernacle, his temple. It was a sign of God's presence among them. It was there in the centre of their everyday lives. If that wasn't enough, he takes on flesh and makes his dwelling among us in Jesus. That's right at the start of John's Gospel. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. And before Jesus ascends to his Father, he made a promise to his disciples that he would always be with them until the end of the age. And then about 60 years later, give or take, the church are granted this picture of the risen Christ. And all his power and glory standing among his churches. As the song we often sing says, for he dwells in the presence of his people. Verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John falls at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And you might have expected the two old friends to share more of an informal greeting. Now Jesus doesn't even say to him, come on mate, get up. You're old, look, look after those knees. This is a John who in the narrative of Jesus' life is called the one whom Jesus loved, isn't he? This is the same John that lay his head on his mate's shoulder the night before he was crucified. And John is a battered and bruised old man himself by this point, and here he is with his face to the ground, as though dead. And perhaps his touch was more familiar than his appearance. John says, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. And John has every right to be afraid. <laughs> Do not be afraid. 
Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Echoing the words of the Lord God, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying I am the A to Z. Verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead. Now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. Our final point. The risen Christ gives us hope in the face of death. John likely assumed that his death was imminent and that he soon would follow his friends, his brothers, the other apostles in being martyred for the gospel. And the churches that he's writing to, living in fear that it would come to them, that they would be put to death for their faith. And Christians all around the world share in that fear. I'm not trying to be morbid about it, but death will come to every one of us. Perhaps death crosses your mind often in other ways. Jesus is not indifferent to the struggle and the suffering of his people. He too suffered and was put to death. And now he's risen from the dead. The first fruits, John says, the firstborn from among the dead. What a glorious comfort for all those who were being persecuted unto death, right? Pop culture often pictures the grim reaper with his hood and his big sickle. Or the devil being the one that calls the shots on life and death. And yet here we see Jesus. God himself, with all authority, glory, sovereign power, the ruler of the kings of the earth, and he's got his own set of keys. I hold the keys to death in Hades. Not Caesar, not Satan. Jesus has the power to bring judgment on those who live their lives in rejection of him. And I've said this exact sentence in a sermon before, but all those oppressing, abusing, manipulating his people will be punished. And yet he has all power and authority. He has the keys to liberate his people. Despite the looming threat and often the reality of death. Jesus is far from being the ruler of an empire who uses his power and authority to mercilessly stamp out anyone who gets in his way, but rather our king uses his power and authority to lay down his own life to lovingly redeem a people for himself. To give them life rather than to take it. That's our king. That's who we've come here to worship this afternoon.
Now, of course, for a time, the Roman Empire did spread around the world. And it spread as far as Britannia, as it was once called. And believe it or not, Doncaster, just down the road, was a significant town in the UK at the time uh, of the Roman occupation of Britain. And a guy called Peter Lewis, who was a pastor, former pastor down in Nottingham, um, recalls a time where he was invited to speak at uh, the opening of a new church over in Doncaster. And because of the amount of people that they were expecting, they rented out the middle of Doncaster Museum for the service. And Doncaster Museum actually holds and has on display a lot of Roman memorabilia and Roman relics. And Peter writes about this event in one of his books. He writes this. I still vividly remember coming to the front of the congregation to preach the sermon. And as I looked out on the scene around me, there with the armour, the standards and the weaponry of the Roman legions and the signs of Roman pomp and glory in glass cases. And here were the once despised Christians, the spiritual descendants of the martyrs of the arena, singing confidently the praises of our God and his Christ. Caesar, once everything, now nothing. The legions of the great empire, once the world's most formidable force, were dust in the earth and their symbols, relics in a museum, dead figures of a dead past. But Jesus Christ was alive and powerfully at work in the world, gathering his people to an eternal kingdom and glory. Church, that has been true and will be true of every empire, of every nation, of every generation, of every organisation that claims to be eternal, that it will never end. Haven't we seen governments and nations let people down? Don't we see governments and nations let people down? Throughout our lives, we've seen leaders rise, leaders fall. Our own country has changed for better, for worse. Countries and empires have conquered and have been conquered. And we have to admit that as Christians here in this country for the past couple of hundred years, we've been pretty privileged to have the freedom to worship in the way we have. And there are signs that that may not continue to be true, but it's exhausting. The world is an exhausting place to be a Christian. Church, Jesus doesn't change. He was the same as he was that first Easter Sunday. As he is in this glorious vision we receive here. As he is today as he will be in a hundred and a thousand more years. Risen, alive, enthroned. The risen Christ gives us confidence in the face of the hardship of life and gives us hope in the face of death. Life is worth the living because 
he lives. I don't know how burdened you're feeling this afternoon. Will you hear these words and take them to heart? Let's try it one last time, shall we? Are you with me? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.